Well, it's always wonderful to gather together with you on Sunday. Thank you, music team, for helping us sing together and sing those wonderful hymns. Some are old and some are new. And I like them both, old and new, because it's about the truth that's in the hymn. And as long as we can sing it together, it sounds decent and they are true theology from Scripture. Man, we are truly blessed to have this kind of music and a hymnal that we can sing today. And they're still being written. We're, we're adding new songs that we sing that aren't in the hymnal. So what a blessing it is to worship the Lord, to worship Him rightly. We've been looking in Romans. We're in the book of Romans, working verse by verse. And we've been looking at what happens when people aren't worshiping God rightly. What happens when they're not truly believers? What happens in the heart and in their life When you look at someone who's a pagan that is worshiping someone else other than the true God. And even as we worked at Romans 2, we started that last week. We've been looking at the person who says they worship God. They say they worship God rightly, but they're really unconverted. And they're going around judging others and looking down their noses at others and saying, those pagans over there, they don't worship God and they sin, but me. This is the, the unconverted Jew or the moralist in our world today. They say, but I'm superior. I'm good. I'm better than those pagans. So God has to honor that and bless me. Well, let's now look at Romans chapter 2. I said last week that I'd hope to grab verse 4 with 1 through 3. But rather than preach for two hours, I went ahead and cut verse 4. And we're going to look at just Romans 2, 4 this week. And there is so much packed into this one verse. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is so good at putting a lot of theology on one verse. It means, though, we've got to study, look at the words, really try to see what he's doing in a short amount of space. But praise the Lord that he has put so much for us to study here and work at understanding both for ourselves. The Bible's good for your sanctification, my sanctification, and also for going out and telling others the truth. We need to know the truth so we can tell others the truth. So here's the Apostle Paul. Let's start in chapter 2 of Romans and verse 1. I'm going to read 1 through 4. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This is Paul's way of summarizing and telling us, look, the unconverted Jew, the the moralist American professing Christian is not saved by looking at others and thinking that they are better than them. A few years ago, here's what CNN said in an article. They had this paragraph I found. We are hardwired for goodness. It's easier to recognize this fact when you think of children. Without mitigating factors, the children's innate goodness will not erode with age. They're saying children are good, they're naturally good, and it's only all these factors from the environment and their parents that make children not good. But goodness, they say, is not the sole virtue of the young. The vast majority of people, when faced with simple, clear, ethical choices, choose good over bad and even good over neutral. First of all, I don't know whose kids that they're thinking about there. Secondly, something like abortion just tells you that when faced with a clear ethical choice, people do not choose good. The Bible, though, is very clear about this. The modern person thinks he's really not bad off, but the Bible says differently. The modern person thinks God will just look at all the good I've done and weigh it against that little bit of bad that I've done, and that will get me into heaven. In fact, Surveys have proven this is what Americans believe. A few years ago, Ligonier did this theological survey 
couple of years ago, they asked people if they agree or disagree with a simple statement. The statement is this, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 65% of people asked said they agreed with that statement. Everyone sins a little bit, but most people are very good by nature. And it's not just a modern phenomenon that we're looking at here. This is something that goes back all the way to the fall of Adam and Eve. And we see it over and over in the Bible. People thinking that they're good, thinking that they can earn God's blessing. The idea is, hey, we're born good. We just got to keep that rolling in our life. And we'll just sail right on in to heaven through the pearly gates and be blessed forever. Well, that's not what Paul says here. He's been telling us in Romans 1 that there is a gospel, there is good news of salvation. It's given through Christ. It comes through faith in Christ. But the pagans don't have any kind of righteousness of God. In fact, they have turned away from God. In chapter 1, he says they've turned to idols. And then God gave them over as a result of that. They turned away from him. They knew him. As far as he is the creator, they could look at creation. They could consider in their heart that there is a God. They turned away. They turned to idols. And so he gave them over to sin. The sin of sexual immorality, homosexuality. Then we see 21 different categories of sins at the end of chapter 1. Well, then Paul says Jews have no excuse either. And we looked last week at just verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. And there he started off in verse 1. He gave a premise. He's making a logical argument. And he said, here's my first statement. Even the self-righteous judge practices sin. Even the person who thinks they're good still sins. And yet they judge other people for the same kind of sins they commit. You see, the Jews of this day and and really uh, in Jesus' time and Paul's day and even up till today thought that they could earn salvation They thought they were the exception. They were the covenant people of God, which they were. God made a covenant with them. The problem is they could never keep their side of the covenant. But they still thought, if we obey the law, we will be saved. Yes, God's judgment is coming. God's wrath is coming on the world. But there's an exception, they thought, for the Jew. They thought, we're born of Abraham. We will make it through. We are are exempt from the judgment. So Paul says, no, you're not, because you commit those sins just like everyone else. And secondly, he said in the second premise that God's judgment falls upon everyone who practices sin. This they would have agreed with. They would have said, of course, of course, God judges sinners. And so then he brings the conclusion in verse three. He says there, even the self-righteous judge, which are these unconverted Jews, they will fall under God's judgment. That person will be judged by God as well. And right now, even they're under God's wrath until they come to faith in Christ. So that's where we left off last week. He's he's really established it in the scriptures here that no one is exempt. No one has an excuse before God. Everyone, if you're not in Christ, every one of those people will be judged according to their sins, not their good works. One sin means eternity in hell without Christ. So now he's going to summarize it for us here. He's going to summarize in verse 4 with a question. And he's really addressing this self-righteous hypocrite. This person who thinks they're so righteous that they could be good enough to be saved. And today that would be any of the Orthodox Jews. Any moralist in America that's a deist that says, yes, there is a God. Anyone who thinks they can earn their salvation, even false converts to Christianity, this would apply. Anybody sitting in a church this morning who says, God will save me based on my works. God will save me because I'm good. That person doesn't understand the gospel. And this passage speaks to them as well. It even speaks to the believer and reminds us truly what God has done for us. And it speaks to us all as we go out and take a clear gospel to the world. So in 2.4, he's going to ask a rhetorical question. And you'll notice here he starts with the word or. Before we even get into the verse, let's deal with the grammar of that word or. He's not saying you can have A or you can have B. These aren't two opposing things. He's saying or as in the fact of 
yeah, the unbelieving Jew is self-righteous. Or to put it another way, and now he goes into it in verse 4. So he's just putting it in different words, what he's already said in 1 through 3. And I'm thankful that he did, because he gives us so much rich theology here in verse 4. Let's look first of all at God's goodness here that's shown through common grace. God's goodness. God's goodness comes to the sinner that doesn't even care about God. They don't care about glorifying Him. And yet God still gives His goodness to that sinner. And that is called common grace. And the way Paul explains is through three attributes here. Three perfections of God. And each of these is modified by the word riches. The riches of His kindness. The the riches of His tolerance. The riches of His patience. And the idea there is God has bountiful, plentiful of this that He gives people. God's not going to run out of His kindness. It is so much more than people even realize, especially the unbeliever. There are riches, there are treasures of God's kindness that He pours out upon the world. So Paul says, God's goodness. He talks, first of all, about the riches of His kindness. His kindness. This really is a word that means beneficial in Greek. It means helpful. It means goodness, generosity. This is God's providence. That He takes care of people that hate Him. That He preserves people who do not worship Him. That constantly sin against Him. This is God's common grace. That's different than special grace. Special grace is when God saves somebody. He brings them into the fold. They become His. He saves them through Christ and the atonement of Christ. No, this is common grace. It goes out to all, not just believers, but to all people. God's gracious attitude is acts of kindness towards sinners. In the biblical doctrine textbook, it defines this attribute of God as God's Goodness that is the perfect sum, source, and standard for himself and his creatures of that which is wholesome, virtuous, beneficial, and beautiful. This is God's goodness. And Paul's saying this is what comes out of God to the whole world. God gives this goodness to the world. Matthew 5.45, Jesus says that he, God the Father, causes his Son To rise on the evil and the good. The sunshine comes up on the evil and the good. The believers and the unbelievers. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Sometimes an unbeliever is more blessed financially than his believing neighbors. Why is that? Well, we can only say that's God's goodness. He decided to do that out of his own kindness. God has done such a thing. Acts 14, 17. Paul is preaching to pagans. He's evangelizing them. And he says, God did not leave himself without a witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful. And listen to this. Paul says, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The unbeliever is blessed by God. They don't even realize it. And they have fruitful seasons. They have produce. Their business goes well. Their hearts are glad because of the things of this world. They're blessed with food. They're blessed with children. They're blessed with so much. God's kindness. And then Paul says, and his tolerance, or really a better translation, forbearance. Forbearance. This word means in Greek, forbearing, enduring, possible difficulty. God puts up with you sinners even before, Paul says, you come to saving faith. God forbears. Even though we're striking against God before we're saved, God puts up with us. He uses the same word in Romans 3.25. Turn over to Romans 3.25. And he uses the same idea there. Romans 3.25. He's talking about Christ's death on the cross and what that did. And it says, Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God through his death on the cross. That's a propitiation in his blood through faith. Okay, now he's going to summarize what this is. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. He passed over them. 
There wouldn't be a human race if God wiped us all out the first time we sinned. But he forbears. He puts up with humans, humanity, mankind, the world. He forbears. Not only is he blessing them by giving them good things, but he's not wiping them out. And Paul is saying that one purpose of that is so that they could hear the gospel and be saved. Otherwise, there would be no one around when Christ came because God would have already wiped out humanity. He has a great forbearance. Now, sometimes people abuse this. Unbelievers don't care about this. They say, well, there's no punishment now for my sin. I'm going to run further and faster into sin. Solomon talks about this in Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. It is so like the unbeliever to respond to a good thing from God by abusing it. By thinking that somehow, because God's not punishing me now for my sin, that I can just run further into it. And that is a great sin. In fact, that's Paul's argument here. God is giving kindness to people. He's giving forbearance to people. And what do they do? They turn around and sin against God. Even those very things that God is giving, they do not respect it, and they turn against Him. Go with me to Luke 13. I'm really going to see this here in Luke 13. Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching there in Israel. He's got Jews coming up asking him questions. They're coming up sometimes to trick him. Sometimes his disciples are asking questions to clarify what he's teaching. And so here he is teaching in Luke 13, verse 1. And it says on the same occasion, the occasion that he had just been teaching in chapter 12 on, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Not exactly sure in history what this was. Probably Pontius Pilate, the the procurator, the governor of the area, had slaughtered some men who were sacrificing an animal at the same time. Or either it was at the time they were sacrificing the animal or at a different part of the city, but the blood all got dumped out of the city in the same waste pile. And so people were very concerned about this. Here's these Galileans that came down to Jerusalem. They were going to worship and do something good, and they got killed by Pilate. What about those guys? And here's what Jesus said. And it tells you what sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate. They thought those are horrible sinners. God, God wiped them out. Those Galileans must have sinned. They don't know what the sin was that the Galileans did, but it must be bad because God killed them as they were bringing a sacrifice. They were doing the right thing outwardly. And so the judgmental person, the self-righteous, the legalist says, I'm better than those guys who died in that slaughter. And here's what Jesus says. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says, don't look at other people and think what happened to them is some judgment and you're above that. You're going to die as well, he says. And the word perish here in the Greek has to do with eternal punishment is the idea here. You're going to perish eternally if you don't repent. Stop worrying about other sinners, he says, and look at your own heart. Now in verse 4, he says, I've got another one. You brought me this story about the Galileans. Now Jesus brings up another situation. Do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits or debtors than all the men who live in Jerusalem? There was a tower and it probably needed some repair. And so 18 men were working on it and it fell over and crushed them. And people looked at that and they said, that is an act of God. It's like a hurricane. It's like a tornado. That's an act of God. And those people must be really bad debtors, culprits. They must owe a great debt to God for their sin. They're worse than I am because God took them out in that way. What does Jesus say? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Stop worrying about what happens to other people and how God is judging them or disciplining them. And look at your own heart. Look at your own faith. 
Is it real? Are you trusting in the Messiah? And now he applies this to the whole nation of Israel, starting in verse 6. He begins telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. So the fig tree and the vineyard are both illustrations. They're, they're metaphors used in the Old Testament for the nation Israel. Israel's like a vineyard that God comes in and he plants and he takes care of it and he waters it and he expects fruit from it. Just like a fig tree is expected to produce fruit. So here's a man, he plants a fig tree and he went to look for fruit on it and did not find any. And he says to the, vi- the vine keeper, the vineyard, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. I've given it three years. There's no fruit. It ought to have fruit by now. Cut it down. In other words, the nation of Israel is going to be punished. And look here what he says. He says, Why does it even use up the ground? It's just taking up space. It's just taking up space. And we could apply this to an individual. We're just breathing God's air. We're taking up space on the earth. What are we doing here in this life if we're not following God and trusting in Him and producing fruit? It's not enough to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of God, and then go our own way and do whatever we want. There ought to be fruit. And that's how you know if a person is truly born again. And the nation Israel wasn't. And they were turning away from Messiah. And so in verse 8, he answered, the vineyard answered, the vineyard keeper answered and said, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. Please, please let it alone, master of the land, keeper, uh, owner of the property. I'll work hard. I will dig around it. I will put in fertilizer. If it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. You see, here is the nation Israel not producing fruit towards the Lord. And the Lord is going to come and judge. But he's giving them a little more time. A little more time. Maybe something can be done. And it's the same with every person in this world. Everyone, if they're not in Christ, will be cut down and thrown into the fire, Jesus says. They will be thrown into the eternal fires of hell. But they have a little more time. If they're still taking in air, if their heart is still beating, If the brain is still working, they have time to repent. Just a little more time. And if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I'm not a believer. You know, I've been faking this. God has given you a little more time. He's still giving you his goodness and his forbearance of your sins. God knows you've sinned against him. He fully understands that you should be punished for it. And yet he's long suffering. He forbears. He puts up with it. Hoping and knowing that his goodness, Paul says later in this verse, will lead you to repentance. Well, let's look at the third attribute here. Patience. Patience. It's a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune. And it's without complaint or irritation. This has to do more with time. Forbearance is overlooking the sin and not wiping you out now. Patience is over a long period of time doing that. That's where our English word long-suffering comes from. Long-suffering. Long period of time, God suffers with sinners. Theologians describe this attribute of God as, as being perfect, placid, which means not easily upset, very calm, in himself and towards sinners, in spite of their continual disobedience and disregard for his warnings. Continual disobedience, continual disregard for all of God's warnings. And the Jew knew their Bible. And the modern American who grows up in the church or has any knowledge of Christianity knows what the Bible says about certain things. And they still disobey it. And God has patience. God has patience. He does not react in anger. He does not pour out his wrath upon the world right this second. He gives us one more second, one more minute, one more day. Now, this is different, as I said, than the forbearance because it involves time. How long has God put up with sinners? How many thousands of years has God put up with sinful mankind? None of us have that kind of patience. I mean, we get angry and blow up over nothing sometimes, even as regenerated Christians with the Holy Spirit. 
Our patience is still very short. And yet here's God's thousands of years. How much patience, if you're a Christian here today, how much patience did God have with you when you were sinning against him? How many sins did you commit in your life? How severe were they? And yet God was patient, long-suffering, and still showing his kindness. This same word for patience is used in 1 Peter 3.20, and it describes the patience of God as he kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So around 50 to 70 years, if you do the math, Noah was building the ark. And it says right there that God was waiting. I said a while ago that God was hoping. Yeah, we use those terms, but of course God knows the future. He knows who will come to him. He knows who he's chosen even before the world began. But the writer of scripture uses this language to give us an idea that God is patient. It's about time. He's waiting 75 years. They see this huge ark being built and they could have said, there must be a flood. Noah, what's going on? And Noah probably was saying that. He was a preacher of righteousness, the Bible says. And yet they did not listen. They continued in their rebellion. But yet God was patient. God waited for a long duration of time for the people to repent. And he still is today. So that's looking at God's common grace. His goodness is shown in common grace. But here's the question Paul brings up. And this is the second thing I want you to see here. God's goodness is despised. And it's despised by hypocrites. It's despised by the self-righteous man. And those two words describe every unbeliever. Hypocritical and self-righteous. Here's the question. And it comes last in the sentence in Greek, but at first in our English. Or do you think lightly of all these things? Do you think lightly of all those good things that God gives you? You unconverted you. Oh man, Paul says, do you think lightly of those things? The verb here means to look down on. To look down on someone or something with contempt. I think the word think lightly is a little, a little light of a translation. I like the old King James. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. There, there's more here than just think lightly. There's a despising that's going on. There's an aversion. People hate God's goodness. They say they like it, but the Bible says they actually hate it. They despise it. They look down upon it. The Jew, Paul says, took God's kindness and his forbearance and his patience for granted. And they thought, hey, if God's blessing me like that, I must be doing something right. I mean, he's showing me his goodness. He hasn't killed me yet. He's very patient. He's long suffering. I must be doing something right around here. You know, I'm blessed. This is the prosperity gospel back in the first century. And they thought, hey, this is God's goodness. And Paul says, you're actually despising God's goodness. They thought because there was a delay in judgment that there was a peace treaty that had been signed. You know, it's just a temporary truce. God has given them time to repent. And they thought the peace treaty had already been signed. The war is over. God has accepted me. They thought repentance and turning to God's Messiah for salvation really wasn't necessary. How many times have you tried to speak with an unbeliever? And they just think there's no reason to really give my whole life to Christ. I mean, there's no reason to be the kind of Christian you are, they say, because I'm doing well. My life is good. Maybe later in life when things get bad, then I'll look for God. Then I'll look to Christ. I had a guy tell me once that he was young, too young to become a Christian. He was going to wait till his latter days in his life, and then he would check out Christianity. But he wanted to live it up between now and then. And I just said, look, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Just because you're young doesn't mean you got another 60 years. Of course, he didn't listen and went on in his sin. Well, Paul is saying that a self-righteous unbeliever receives all this goodness and kindness and mercy from God, and they think it's because they're so great. God has blessed me for how good I am. I'm better than those Gentile pagans who are worshiping statues. They live in open sin, but I'm following through with all this protection against outward sin. It's, yeah, I've got some sin in my heart, but it doesn't show to other people. I have outward acts of religion. 
This is why the reformer John Calvin said the ungodly absurdly congratulate themselves on their prosperity as though they were dear to God. And all the while, God kindly and bountifully supports them. They congratulate themselves. Look at how good I am. Look at how good I am. And Paul says, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? In verse 3, he said, why do you despise God's goodness? As Americans, we think we're so blessed. You know, look at how protected we are. Look at how wealthy we are. We have the best nation that has existed with finances, with homes, with military might. We pat ourselves on the back and we think God has really blessed us. God has really blessed us. There must be a lot of Christians in America today. And Paul says, do you despise the goodness, the forbearance, and the patience of God? He says, churchgoers who really think it's not that big a deal to be saved. They're still trying to earn their salvation. And Paul says they're despising God's goodness. Just because someone can say, I've never robbed a bank or murdered anyone. I've never actually hurt anybody. They think they've done something to earn God's goodness. Well, you know, I sinned today, but I'm still alive. And even Christians can fall into this, you know. I committed that sin. I looked at that sinful thing on my phone. I'm okay. God didn't do anything. Nothing bad has happened in my life today. You know, I committed that sin against my wife. Maybe you committed a sin against your husband. And you just think, it's no big deal. Don't fall into that, Christian. Don't fall into that. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, here's one of the most serious and one of the most solemn charges that can ever be brought against man. There's nothing more reprehensible than to persist in a life of sin while talking about the goodness and mercy of God. It's one of the worst things you can do. Not even considering that God is being good because that's who he is. Not because you've done something to earn it. Well, thirdly, now let's look thirdly at God's goodness and its purpose that is ignored by unbelievers. God's goodness and purpose is ignored by unbelievers. So they think, look, I have earned this. I have done something. I congratulate myself for all the blessings that God has given me. And then Paul says, they really know the truth, but they ignore it. Look at the rest of the verse. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. And this not knowing means that they ignore the facts. They ignore what their conscience, what their heart tells them is true. They ignore it. It's willful ignorance. They know God is good. The Romans 1 already said even the pagans know that God created everything, that he's blessed us with life and breath and rains and good seasons. And he's given creation so that we can look at it and know that he is God. And yet even pagans, though they know that, they deny God the Father. They deny that there is a true God. Well, now he's talking to Jews. And he says, don't you know your Bible? Don't you know your Bible? Don't you know God is good? Why are you ignoring that? Jesus used to ask that of the Pharisees. Have you not read? Don't you know? He's saying, have you never read the scriptures? You call yourself teachers of Israel. And you don't even know what the Bible says. They're not knowing that the kindness, it says, of God leads you to repentance. Now, this is an interesting Verse, that God's kindness would lead unbelievers to repentance. And Paul says, don't you know that? Well, let's talk about repentance. What is repentance? Second Corinthians 7.10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. That leads to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Repentance is turning away from your sin. It's recognizing that you have sinned against God. It is sincere sorrow, yes, but it's remorse. It's mourning over your sin and then turning from it. That's what repentance is. It's not just saying, you know, I'm sorry that that had such bad effects on you. You know, it's like the famous people that come on TV. I'm sorry if I've hurt anybody out there. And you already know they've hurt everybody. That's why they're in the news, right? No, this is true change of heart, true sorrow over your sin. You know it's offended God. You know it's hurt other people. And you turn from it 
and you change directions and you come to God through Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. Here's how the Westminster Catechism puts it. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from that sin unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after a new obedience. Turn away from sin, turn to God, and have a new desire to obey God. So Paul is talking here about conversion. He's talking about being saved. But when you see repentance and faith in the Bible, in the New Testament, repentance always comes first. You turn away from something, and then you turn to something. That something is Jesus Christ. So Paul says, all of these wonderful things that God gives you, His goodness leads you to repentance. Now, some have thought, well, that's possible. He's just saying that's a possibility. It's passive. No, the the verb here, lead, is very active. It's a present tense active verb. The idea is it's an ongoing action. It's always happening. And he's saying, Paul is, here's the purpose of God's goodness. Here's the purpose. It's being shown to believers for the purpose of leading them to repentance. In other words, it's the natural tendency. God's not actually saving people when he gives them his goodness. He's not saving them by giving the unbeliever reins and food and family and a house. That's not salvation. This is not God's saving grace. Remember, this is his common grace. But that common grace is designed so that it carries a person along towards repentance. The natural tendency of God's goodness leads to repentance. Some have described it as a constraining influence of God and his goodness to point someone. And yet we know the Bible tells us people resist it. People resist it. This is not God's irresistible grace when he calls someone to salvation. In that moment, it can't be resisted. God changes the sinner's heart and they do believe in Christ every single time. But this is a natural constraining influence that when God's common grace is shown, its design, one of its purposes, is to pull people along towards repentance. And yet they can resist it. And they do. Because the Bible says we're sinners. The Bible says we're totally depraved. The Bible says if we had a choice, we would spit in God's face every time without his saving grace. Paul says, look, common grace, don't you know, though, it would lead you to repentance? Don't you know that, Jew? Don't you know that you're supposed to see as God pours out his goodness on you that you're utterly worthless, that you don't deserve that because you're a sinner? That's what it's supposed to do. And we all know that. All mankind knows when God shows his goodness to them. We know that we don't deserve it, but we deny that truth. The Bible says in Romans 1, we suppress the truth of God. We suppress it. We push that beach ball down as hard as we can underwater, and it keeps coming back up, and we just get madder and madder at it and keep on pressing it down. We resist. The unbeliever does. Resist this pulling along towards repentance. But God is so good. He's so patient. He's so forbearing. Listen to Jeremiah 31.3. Yahweh appeared to him, Jeremiah, from afar. And he's talking about Israel. I have loved you with an everlasting love. He's loved Israel, even though they've turned from him over and over. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Hosea 11.4. Hosea is pronouncing judgment. And here's what the prophet says from God. God says, I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. Yes, he he led them, pulling them, drawing them to repentance with bonds of love. That's in one of the newer hymns that we sometimes sing. Drawn with cords of love. The name of the hymn is His Forever. And I became to them, God says, as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. And I bent down and I fed them. God is so merciful that even people who turn away from him, he cares for them like a tender little animal. He takes care of them. He feeds them. He draws them with his loving kindness. Not wooing them, not trying to say, oh, please, please come. No, he sets it all up so that 
If we weren't such sinners, we would come to him. But we are sinners. And we turn from him every time. That's why Stephen Charnock, the Puritan, said that all the notices and warnings that God gives men, either public or personal calamities in your life, is a continual invitation to repentance. Every time something bad happens, he's saying, that's one more sign that you need to repent and turn to Christ. He goes on to say, God's long suffering does, as it were, take us by the hand and it points us to the way wherein we should go. His patience stands between the offending creature and eternal misery a long time that men might not foolishly throw away their souls and be damned for their impotency. In other words, God has put it all there for us to see. And you are without excuse, Paul says. Don't you know all these things are designed to lead you to repentance and yet you still resist and despise it? Let's go over to 2 Peter 3. Peter talks about this as he's writing to the church. And the main issue in 2 Peter is false teachers. They've come in, they've influenced the church, and he's warning them about these false teachers. But near the end of the book here, 2 Peter 3.3, 3, he basically teaches the same thing we just saw in Romans 2.4. So let's look at this. Romans, 2 Peter 3.3. 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? I thought you said Jesus was coming back. False teachers will come into the church and say, where is that promise? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You know, you said God was going to judge the world. All this judgment, all this fire and brimstone people preach. Let's just be happy, be blessed. You know, let's just love everyone. God's not coming back to judge the world anytime soon. Where is that? That hasn't happened yet. That's what they're going to say. Verse 5. For when they maintain this, Peter says, it escapes their notice, which is hilarious that he says it that way. It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. You know, God doesn't think like we do when it comes to time. For these people to say, you know, God hasn't come to judge the world. He created the world long ago. He formed everything in it long ago. All these things to which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. God's already come once and judged the world. Remember that. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved. They're being kept in waiting. They're sitting reserved for fire, he says. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction. There's a bunch of false believers. They've come into the church. They're teaching falsely. And one of the things they're saying is we can live it up now because the judgment has been put off. And Peter says, you remember God's already judged the world once with the flood and he's saving it for the next judgment, which is the fire. He will judge it with fire. But let's see here in verse 8. Look at this. This is a theology we saw in Romans. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. Here's some things that escape their notice. But Paul says, you, the church, don't let this escape your notice, beloved. So we know he's talking believers. That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. He's not saying the earth was made billions of years ago. That's sometimes what people make out of this. No, it works both ways. A thousand years is like one day. One day is like a thousand years. In other words, God's outside of time. God is not following our timeline. He's outside of time. He created time and space and all that exists. Look at verse 9. The Lord's not slow about his promise. In his timeline, he is going to bring wrath and judgment. And he's not slow about it. It will come to pass. He's not slow like some count slowness. But he is patient. There's that same Greek word. He's patient. He's given you time. Now, Peter's writing to the church. He's patient toward you. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the false converts in the church. He's talking to the false teachers that have slipped in. He's talking to the wolves. He's talking to the moralist who's sitting in that chair in church saying, I'm going to be saved because I'm so good. And Peter says, God is patient toward you. Why is he waiting to judge the earth? He's patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
He is waiting for all those false converts, all those people hearing the gospel that are going to church to come to true repentance. God is very patient and he wants them to come. Ezekiel 33, 11. Ezekiel says, God says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God says, I have no pleasure. It's not in God's nature to have joy over wrath and judgment. Yes, he will do it. That comes from his righteousness. He is a righteous judge. He will judge sin. But it's not something that he is finding joy and pleasure in. Luke 15. You'll probably remember this story as the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I like it better entitled The Father's Joy, not the prodigal son. It's not just about the son. It also includes his brother, but it includes the father's joy. So let's look at that in conclusion here. Luke 15. In fact, we know it's about the father's joy because in 1510, in the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's joy in heaven every time a sinner repents. Now he's going to tell a story. To back that up, he says, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Basically, the son is young. He wants to go live it up and party. And he says, look, I'm going to get an inheritance when you die. Just go ahead and pretend you're dead now. Give me my money so I can go. You're as good as dead to me, he says. I don't want anything to do with you. I am out of here. So he goes. He lives it up. He runs out of money. Next thing you know, he has to make a living. He has to work. He ends up feeding the pigs, which is uh, atrocious to a Jew to have to feed pigs because they're unclean to the Jew. And here he is and watching the pigs eat better than him because he's starving. And verse 17, but when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, when he realized that, hey, my father was very kind. He was very good. He was very generous. When he came to his senses, when he began to have a change of mind, we could even say when he repented of his sin, starting there in verse 17, he came to his senses and he says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I'm starving to death. But back home, my dad, he's so generous. He gives everybody plenty to eat. He says, I'll get up and I'll go to my father. And will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. First, God, I've sinned against God, Father, for doing this thing, this sinful thing. And I've also sinned against you. He's confessing his sin. He's he's reconciling. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true repentance here. Whatever you want me to do, Father, I will do it. I'm not even worthy. Don't treat me like a son. Make me one of your hired men. The prodigal son here, he stopped and he considered the goodness of his father. That's the the point of the parable. The father has great joy. He, He runs out, he hugs his son, he welcomes him back home. But the son had to repent. The son had to turn and go back to the father. And he thought of his father's goodness back home. You know, when we consider God's goodness, we consider the kindness that he shows to an unbeliever. The unbeliever has two choices. They can assume that everything's fine and that this is God's blessing upon them when they have good things in life. Or they can be convicted over it. They can turn to Christ. They can repent of their own unworthiness to receive even God's common grace. That's the only two options. That's it. You can turn to God or you can keep on living the way that you want to live. I like what Thomas Goodwin said. He said, what is it you will then come to plead and cry for on the day of judgment? Will you say, oh, mercy, mercy to God? Why, wretch that you are, he says, it is mercy that you've sinned against. Riches of mercy and patience abused turns into fury. He says, you want to make God really mad? You sin against his mercy. He showed you mercy your whole life and you sinned against it by ignoring him and turning away. 
Goodwin says, I may allude to that speech in 1 Samuel 2.25. If a man sins against his brother, the judge shall judge him. But if against God, who shall plead for him? So, had you sinned against any other attribute of God, mercy might have pleaded for you. But if you sin against mercy itself, who shall plead for you then? It's not just stumbling into sin. Paul's saying, this mercy is shown to everyone. And when they despise it, when they look down on it, when they turn away from it, that's sinning against God himself, the mercy of God. God's mercy will not be there on the day of judgment. So let's, as believers, take a very clear gospel message to the unbelievers. Let's make sure that we're telling them a judgment is coming and that God is being good to them right now and he's patient and he is long-suffering so that that will lead them to repentance and let's wake them up to their sin. We've got to tell them the bad news before we tell them the good news. And believer here today, you ought to look at this passage and say, thank you, Lord. All those years, you preserved me. Those times that I could have died from that car accident, that I could have died from that gunshot, that I could have died from being robbed and stabbed to death in the streets. I could have died from that overdose. I could have died from that surgery. I could have died many, many times. And gone to hell forever. And yet God was long-suffering. Let's be thankful that he did bring us to saving faith. Lord, we do thank you today for your goodness. You are perfectly good. We can't even define goodness without considering you, God. Let us never sin against your goodness. Let us never, never despise it. As believers here today, we want to honor you for that. We want to thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here in this room, anyone who doesn't truly know Christ the Savior, who hasn't turned from their sins, whether that's a child, God, or an adult that's older or somewhere in the middle, let this sermon wake them up. Let this passage wake them up to true and saving faith. We pray that you would do this to glorify your name, and we honor you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.